The sequel cast airs Wednesdays, 3 to 4 p.m. Pacific Time on Cascadia.fm online internet streaming radio you can also download episodes of the sequel cast from www.sequelcast.com but i think it was ted kotchik who, who said of the novel that to him the theme is be careful about the monsters you create and that's something we see developed throughout the course not just of the of the rambo franchise but of the whole action genre over you know 30 years the the movies keep wrestling with that idea there was a podcast called the sequel cast they talked about movies and they talked about something else called boobies the sequel cast it's the sequel cast it's the sequel cast www.sequelcast.com Hello and welcome to the sequel cast. This is a podcast where we talk about movie franchises one movie at a time. We are wrapping up our take on the uh, Rambo films by covering the so far last film in the series just titled Rambo. It's also known informally as Rambo 4 and there's even a uh, director's cut entitled John Rambo of all things. Uh, This is your host Uncle Milkshake. With me is uh, Thrasher. Hello, hello. Uh, Schoolboy. Hi. And very special guest, Eric Lichtenfeld. He uh, has a book called Action Speaks Louder, Violent Spectacle in the American Action Movie. And he's also done the uh, text commentary for uh, Predator. Welcome to the sequel cast. Thank you very much. Now, you know, it's always interesting with these action franchises when they have, you know, a trilogy that comes out pretty soon after each entry in the series, and then they wait several years before doing, like, a fourth installment. I'm thinking of, like, Indiana Jones or Die Hard or, in this case, Rambo. Or even Basic Instinct 2. Oh, yes. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> or the uh, Alien versus Predators and Predators films. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess you're right with the third Predator, uh, confusingly called Predators. Mm-hmm. So I have to say, out of... You talk about a lot of different films in Action Speaks Louder, but can you think of one action film that maybe not as many people have seen as has seen as you would like to that's really worth checking out? Yeah, I am a champion of, believe it or not, and it, this fits nicely with your uh, remark about trilogies, um, especially trilogies that are then followed by a, a new installment much later on, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Oh, yeah. Hmm. I'm, Who runs Bob to town? <laughs> no, I, I uh, I'm a really big fan of, of that movie. I think it's um, not as uh, nearly as as perfect a movie as The Road Warrior is, but I think it's it's much more interesting and much more ambitious and um, a really underrated, underappreciated gem. But that's also that's not a crazy violent movie. No, it's not, um, and, and it's definitely not uh, as violent as um, as The Road Warrior and. and probably not even as, as Mad Max. It's just, uh, I think, a really beautiful, strange movie with, um, believe it or not, with, with something on its mind in a way that Mad Max and The Road Warrior, which I love and which I admire, uh, are really just much more straightforward genre pieces. Um, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome feels much more personal, and um, well, like I said, it, it has something on its mind in the way that uh, the other two don't. Without sacrificing, you know, the the astonishing visuals um, and cinematography and um, and wonderful sound design, it's, it's really, I think, a, a great piece of filmmaking that has never gotten it to do. Oh, it's pretty cool. Yeah, a lot of people don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually never seen Mad Max Beyond the Thunderdome. Uh, I've seen Road Warrior lots of times, and uh, mm-hmm. I need to get around to watching it. I've seen the original Mad Max, I think, once. That's like the first one I ever saw. Why? Wow, I'm I'm kind of surprised. I'm sorry, say that again. I'm kind of no, I'm kind of surprised at Uncle Milkshake because uh, that's like that was the first one I'd ever seen, um, and I was kind of like, what is this weird post-apocalyptic? And I don't know what this. Ha- I don't know anything about these characters and stuff. He has a cool car and a whistle, and there's a guy in armor, and then hey, it's Tina Turner. Well, you know, the way I, I always think of it is, um, in fact, usually people discount 
um, the first Mad Max. They, they kind of forget about it. Um, you know, really, people just sort of focus on the first two. It's as if, you know, the Mad Max franchise is, is a trilogy with only two movies in it. Um, and the, the way I always think of, of that pairing of the, of the second two is The Road Warrior is a perfect movie um, that's, that's a fairly straight, that has a fairly straightforward vision that's not trying to do anything uh, especially unique. It's just going about what it's doing in a really great way. It's creative for sure, um, but there's sort of always been a smallness about it to me. Thunderdome, wildly flawed in a way that Road Warrior is not. It's, it's an uneven movie. It's an inconsistent movie, but it is so expansive in um, in what it's trying to do and what it's trying to say, and, uh, and, and I really have a lot of affection for it. Interesting. Um... Well, let's let's talk about let's talk about Mad Max some more. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I guess when we cover when we cover the Road Warrior films, I'd love to have you back on. Well, you know, also one thing that I'd, I'd like to say more generally, because um, you were you were talking about this pattern of, of franchises that get resuscitated, you know, so many years after the fact, and and I I have to I love that. Um, I think there's something exciting about that. Even I mean, even when we're talking about you know, Basic Instinct two, you know, something that's <laughs> that's trash and ridiculous and, and all those things. I love I love the audacity of those sequels. I Ooh, love the of audacity. That, Wall Street, oh, money never sleeps. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I haven't gotten out to see Wall Street two yet. I've I've been so looking forward to it, but um, you know, I have four month old twins, and so that kind of takes care of that. But um, what I love about these kinds of sequels is the traditional thinking uh, and the traditional approach to a sequel is it's a safe bet. You know, it's a pre-packaged, almost pre-sold entity. You know all the pieces. It's very familiar. It's not especially risky. Yeah, it probably co- the sequel probably costs more than the predecessor, than the original did to make, but it's such a safe commodity that, um, that it almost can't miss. You know, in the marketplace. That's sort of the the thinking. Well, no, you're right. The, the movies brand a character. Um, Rambo is a brand. Right. But when you when you revisit that brand 15 years later, 20 years later, that what made it a brand, what made it um, what made it a brand was the fact that so many of these installments came out, you know, in such short order. Um, that's what made it safe. When you revisit it 20 years later, it's so ridiculous. There's so much skepticism that the that whereas the fact that it was a sequel 20 years ago would have been um, made it a much safer bet, the fact that it's a sequel now might even be working against it. Um, well, you know, it's so, it's almost like ra- you know rather than counting on the brand being recognized, it's it's like they're counting on just nostalgia for the brand. Well, that's a huge part of it, um, and you can't overstate the importance of nostalgia. Um, you know, yeah, who here who, doesn't who want Rambo? a new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie? I'm sorry? I don't. Who doesn't want a new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie? <laughs> I, I said, I don't want one. <laughs> well, they came out with that cartoon movie about five years ago, I think. And, uh... No, no, but another live action with oh. Corey Keem doing the voice. <laughs> there was Corey Feldman. You know, I think, but, the, but there's, there's a subtle difference there, I think, in that when... And the Turtles, I think, is an interesting case because when when you have a Rambo, right, or a Die Hard, um, yes, the these fourth installments are obviously banking on bringing in a newer audience and a, and a younger audience, but they're also banking on bringing in fans of the original. Um, something like the Turtles, where there's really little, very little chance that the kids who saw the first Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in, in, what was it, 1989, 1990, those people, unless they're bringing their kids, are not going to see a new live-action Turtles movie. Um, and you know, that's my opinion. I could be wrong. And the people who are the audience uh, for that movie weren't around for the, for the original, I think it was three. They may have seen them on video, they may have seen them on DVD, but... That nostalgia factor, I think, it does work a little differently. Um, I think there it's about the audience for the new Turtles movie grew up sort of hearing about 
um, the original Turtles movie or, or seeing them on video and DVD but not really owning them. And I think that this is their chance to sort of own the franchise that belonged, you know, maybe to their older brothers or their, you know, their older friends' older brothers and sisters. Uh, so, so I think there's this sense of sort of owning a piece of, of culture that you, that you missed the first time around. That's pretty interesting. I think with that we can move on to talking about uh, Rambo, which... And stop blowing up. <laughs> and Rambo... And, and, oh. Go. Rambo did have uh, one of my favorite explosions uh, <laughs> of the last several years, so, so I'm, I'm glad you, you threw that in. Definitely touch on that. Rambo came out in uh, January 2008, kind of a weird time to release a Rambo mm-hmm. movie, directed by Sylvester Stallone, written by Art Monterostelli and uh, Sylvester Stallone. And, um, I, I, you know, it's difficult to figure out where to start when talking about uh, a movie, but the opening of Rambo with the stock news footage of what's going on in uh, in Burma is so divorced from how any of the other Rambo films start that I'm not quite sure what they were thinking. Maybe they were thinking, oh, the person that goes and sees Rambo 4 doesn't want to, doesn't know what Burma is. We need to explain to him with news footage. And yet in the movie, there's several pretty, you know, examples. You know, these bad guys are really bad guys. They're attacking civilians or throwing grenades at them for fun. I don't think you need a newscast with real footage to... Well, no, but I think it explains it what's happening in Burma at the time, or still is happening in Burma at the time. Well, I think, I think uh, also... I was just saying that I think also they might have been going for that to give the, as weird as this may sound, to give the movie an air of class going for that whole like Citizen Kane newsreel opening exposition without exposition by making it look like news. Well, I think that's part of it. I think that there are a couple of things going on with that sequence. The first is that unlike Rambo First Blood Part Two and, and Rambo Three, Burma wasn't really on the radar screen of the target audience. Um, like the Soviets. Right. Um, so I think that there was a sense there that you needed to educate the audience a little bit. I also think that um, while you could have done that in, just in exposition, the stock footage gives it an obvious authenticity. Um, and also, this, and this, I would say the second part of it, a justification um, for bringing Rambo back. But I think that that was a really serious, um, represented a really serious misfire um, and, a, and a poor decision. And the reason is that when I mean, the Rambo series is, certainly the sequels, uh, are such over-the-top fantasies. Um, they're practically loony. And, even, and the idea of a Rambo 4, with Stallone being the age he was, and, and after so much time had passed, just compounds the leaniness. And, and this isn't saying whether it was a good idea to make the movie or not, or, or uh, whether it was a good movie or not. I'm just talking about what you bring to the theater with you. And when you go to a Rambo movie, when you sit down to watch a Rambo movie, it's based on so much fantasy that it's really about escapism. Um, to open it with that stock footage actually made me feel guilty. You know, here I am sitting, I'm in Los Angeles, I'm sitting in this you know, state-of-the-art movie theater drinking a you know, $4 bottle of water, um, and I'm ready to just gorge myself on you know, the most ridiculous fantasy that professional fantasy makers can, can conjure. And you know, here I am you know, confronted with, uh, you know, with this reality. Um, it really didn't make me feel very good about how I was spending you know, my Saturday night. Um, so I think that was a, uh, that was a misstep. Um, but others, you know, others may disagree. But, uh, I hey, think- back in the day, they used to do uh, newsreels right before the movie telling uh, American soldiers were fighting Hitler and like that. Yeah, but, but those newsreels were much more sanitized. Um, and I, mean, I don't know if I want to go as far as to say they were propaganda pieces. But they were, and while they did, of course, have some effect on the movie-going experience, you've you got to recognize they weren't part of the movie itself. Um, so, so I think you bring up a, a good point in, in introducing them, but 
I still think that um, you know, that bringing that, that newsreel, that sorry, bringing that documentary footage or newsreel footage, whatever you'd like to call it, into Rambo just wasn't the right move given given who the characters are with the franchise. Yeah, I, I, I can see that. I mean, maybe part of the idea with having that intro with the news footage was to try and say this this Rambo movie is uh, much grittier than yeah, the other I think, ones? Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. Um, I think that that's a very good point. Um, I think that's, that that's evident throughout the, the movie. And, and not only grittier than the others, but I think I would maybe add to that that they're grittier than our kind of sanitized memory of the others, and also that they're grittier than the current crop of action movies. You know, the fact that Rambo is a hard R um, relative to, you know, live free or die hard, or, you know, basically just the the action genre in general right, right now, which, which has driven really hard toward the PG-13 zone. Um, so, so I think maybe it was to differentiate itself from its predecessors and also from its contemporaries. Sure. Um, I think that's a good point. And, and although this film, uh, I'm just going to call it Rambo 4 to make it easy. John Rambo. John Rambo, yeah. <laughs> was it First Blood Part 4? <laughs> I guess no, it was First Blood Rambo, Part Return to Hell. <laughs> there were Rambo's actually... I found... There were there were a, a huge number of uh, of titles um, that Rambo Four went through. There was uh, there was Rambo Four with uh, you know Arabic numeral, Rambo Four the Roman numeral. There was uh, and I love the Roman numeral. I really wish sequels would bring the Roman numeral back. By the way, um, it's not there just was, Roman. Uh, Rambo Four Blood Ties, Rambo Four End of Peace, um, Rambo Four Holy War. Rambo 4, In the Serpent's Eye, and uh, Rambo 4, Pearl of the Cobra. Oh, right. yeah. uh, and then that's all before we get to John Rambo, which, was, which of course preceded just Rambo. In Japan, it was actually called Rambo, The Final Battlefield. <laughs> I, I can see that fitting. Um, I mean, that's the question. Is the, like, it's even, I read an interview that said that, like, oh, no, that's not the end of John Rambo. There could be another movie. Right. And he had some plans to do a fifth one, and who knows, maybe one day there'll be a fifth one. But I don't. The way this one ends, we'll, we'll get into that later. Seems like it's trying to wrap something up. But uh, I mean, even though this film is has a more serious tone, I think it still has some humor. For instance, you open up on Rambo uh, catching snakes for a living, mm-hmm. which is kind of absurd. And well, snake farming's an honorable profession. Yeah. I mean, that helps make anti venoms and stuff. He's saving lives. And also supplying cobra fights. Oh. You know, I, I have to admit, I don't remember the, the comedic tones of, of, of the movie very well, but um, I do remember that the third movie um, tries to introduce uh, more levity and, and more comedy into the um, into thing, more of a more of a self-deprecating um, sense of humor, um, for whatever that's worth. Yeah, yeah. In the third one, you have a bit more of the. Uh... The back-and-forth dialogue between uh, Rambo and Troutman. And Troutman, right. Well, now, here, here's the thing, is, though. Most of the comedy, especially in this movie, comes from the other characters. I mean, Rambo's not doing, like, one-liners. No, like but, but there's a part where he's, he's talking uh, to um, the character Sarah Miller, who's played by Julie Benz, a female missionary in this movie, or a Christian missionary, I guess. And, and she is saying... That you know, what's with your history? And he tries to. He explains, "Oh, I was in Vietnam, and I came to the United States." And she's like, "Well, how did you end up in Thailand?" And Rambo answers with, "It's complicated." <laughs> that in itself, you know, it's not a, it's not a hilarious line of dialogue, but it's kind of funny if you look at where the different movies have taken place. Right, but it, well, it's, it's a little bit funny, but it's 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 less about being overtly funny and more about kind of creating an inside joke between Rambo and the audience. Um, you know where where the Julie Benz character is, is the outsider. You know every inside every inside joke needs an outsider to be an inside joke, right? And um, in that case, you know, like you said, it's not a hilarious one-liner, but it's but what it is is an inside joke between us and Rambo, and it's those kinds of little grace notes that are going to give you as a viewer sort of a warm 
um, association um, with the character and with the franchise and, and make you glad that you're spending time um, with him again. You know, Rocky Balboa, you know, just a few years earlier, you know, there's the, the little Marie's son, Steps, who, you know, he becomes the eyes we see Rocky memorabilia through, you know, and that you know, reminds us of, of those connections. One thing in this in this film I have a tough time buying is why Rambo agrees to help the uh, the missionaries that come. Mm-hmm. The idea is the missionaries are trying to get upriver to help some of the uh, the locals in in Burma because the villages are very impoverished and they're going to help with the shipment of food and and so forth. And they can't get upriver by himself, so they need Rambo's help. And I've watched this movie a few times, and I, I do really enjoy this film, but. It comes off as uh, Julie Benz just bats her eyelashes and Rambo <laughs> magically decides, oh, I'm going to take him down on the boat. Because he warns them it's dangerous. They don't have weapons. If they don't have weapons, they're not going to change anything. Where, does the, dream, where does the dream sequence fall in that chain of events? Remind me. It's been a while okay. okay, the version I saw was the extended cut, and in that one the dream sequence happens at a different time slightly. But uh, Jason, can you remember? I don't remember a dream sequence. It's it's a dream sequence. It's black and white flashbacks of the previous three Rambo films. I saw them in the theater, so... Oh, okay. So it's quite for some reason, I don't I, remember that being in the theatrical release. It, it is in the theatrical release because um, I haven't seen it on DVD. I, I only saw it in theaters. And what was really interesting, there were a couple of things, if, if my memory is correct about this. Um, one of the things they used in, in the dream sequence, it's, it's like that feverish dream sequence, is um, Troutman killing Rambo, which was footage um, I believe they shot because the first blood was, was originally supposed to end with Rambo's um, death. Or, or, or I don't know, I'm sorry, I don't remember if we see him kill uh, Rambo, but there's the implication of it. Um, if, like I said, if memory serves. But what I do remember uh, more clearly from the dream is that um, Rambo goes through this, this thing where he says, you know, all those times you said you were um, killing for your country, but really you were killing for you. And from what I remember, that's ultimately what compelled him to go up. Yes, he's doing it for a good cause, but it's because the movie finally acknowledges for the first, really honestly and for the first time in, in the series, this guy is a killer. It's who he is. It's what he does. Everything else, country and victory and, you know, if it's, if I'm still alive, it's still alive. All of that stuff is window dressing. Mm. He kills. He's a killer because killing is what he does. It's what he is. And that. Well, well let's go back to the the title of your book. Violence mm-hmm. speaks louder. Action speaks louder. Action. action. <laughs> okay, not violence, but action. He's a man of action. Right. A man of violence. He is a soldier. He's always yep. been a soldier. He'll always be a killing machine. He's a piece of meat. Come on, Rocky. You got to catch chicken. <laughs> right, but but Rambo, and if you go through the other movies, Rambo's relationship to killing and his relationship to his role as a killer um, is discussed and and depicted in different ways. You know, sometimes it's they try to make the point that Rambo was a guy who you know these other guys kind of came along and made him into what he is now, and other times the implication is he was always this guy. And the military came along and stripped everything else away. So it's, you know, who is Rambo without the military? You know, who is Rambo without Rambo? Um, you know, the question that movies sort of sometimes answer it one way and sometimes answer it another way. Ted Kotcheff, um, the director of First Blood, um, had a very interesting way of, lo- I think it was Ted Kotcheff, who had a very interesting way of looking at the, at the original story. Because the original First Blood, there were, there were like a million directors and a million um, actors attached to it for years and years and years before it got made. Al Pacino came close to doing it. Uh, Mike Nichols almost directed it. I mean, people you would never in a million years associate with Rambo. But I think it was Ted Kotcheff who, who said of the novel that to him the theme is be careful about the monsters you create. And that's something we see developed throughout the course, not just of the, of the Rambo franchise, but of the whole action genre over, you know, 30 years. The, the movies keep wrestling with that idea. 
Well, you you mentioned something about about uh, Rambo's relationships, and I think you know, unfortunately, uh, Richard Crenna, the actor who played Troutman, yeah. died before this new Rambo could be made. So of course, yeah. they couldn't bring back Crenna. They couldn't bring back the character of Troutman, and I think that speaks to it. Is Troutman? Troutman is a character that is so intimately connected with Rambo. I think Troutman probably is the only character that truly understands who and what Rambo is, which is why in the, in the other movies, if Troutman's involved with something, it's very believable that Rambo could get involved because there is a lot of trust and respect and, and, in, and even intimacy between those characters. But once Troutman's out of the picture... It, it really ruins so much of Rambo's inherent motivation for getting involved in any kind of dangerous situation. I think that's a, that's a good point and a fair point. Um, yeah, and I think the screenwriters couldn't think well. It's obviously not going to disincentivize um, Sylvester Stallone from making Rambo four, um, but it does. You know, so it, it it does present a problem, or it did. Well, at least they didn't try to have Troutman come back in this movie played by a different actor. And, uh... Well, there was, but you, there was um, somebody who was going to be a Troutman-like character. Um, I'm trying to remember who was supposed to play him. Really? Um, yeah, it might have been James Brolin. Huh. I'm not positive about Brolin. that. But, yeah, James Brolin, I think, was... Um, but, like I said, I, I, would, uh, I don't remember for sure, but there was at one point someone who was going to be joining the, the franchise... Basically, to he wasn't going to be playing Troutman, but it was going to be, you know, another Troutman. Basically. Yeah, it would be I, that I, kind of like version. fatherly figure coming to show him to do something or whatever. Go save. And instead, really, you have the father, you have the the priest, kind of in that kind of role where it's the person asking him to do this, asking him to do this for, I guess, out of the goodness of his heart this time. And the other way, it's like his commander and friend. There's yeah, a question mark at the end of that. You know, Rambo is not it, Rambo is nothing if not a, a kind of modern mythological character, and in many mythological stories uh, and and not so mythological stories, the hero needs the call to adventure. Um, you know that can be um, Troutman coming to Rambo in, in Rambo: First Blood Part Two and you know, offering him the deal. Um, it can mm-hmm. be um, Luke come with me to Alderaan and you know, learn the ways of the force or, or whatever, you know, somebody has to, you know, in the hunt for Red October, which is not what you would think of necessarily, it, it immediately is a story like this. You know, you have the the, um, the president's guy asking Alex Baldwin to, you know, go off to see and prove your theory and all that. So you kind of, you often need someone to pull the hero along um, or propel him out the door. Um, and, and Troutman is very useful in that capacity. Sure. And, and, and I think the priest is is serving that role here, right? In a bit of a and you also or... like in like in Rambo three, you have captured people who, before Rambo had the choice of helping them out, and I guess he could have said no, he could have, and they, they would have found somebody else, sure, but then he wouldn't have had the connection to the people on the boat, and also I don't think the father would have asked him to uh, lead a group of really cool. Really awesome actors being mercenaries to go <laughs> rescue the. I, okay, I I know because here's the thing is, before Rambo's always been by himself. I like the yeah. group. I like I like the actors. I mean Michael Marsden, uh, Tom Kang. Um, I like the guys who are playing the uh, the mercenaries in this, and yet they're allowed to kick some ass. And Rambo, he does a massive amount of damage. Don't get me wrong, he still is. Incredibly violent, but you have the others like Schoolboy, who's an excellent sniper, and you have some fun between seeing their style and Rambo's style, which we kind of already know. I think mm-hmm. also maybe that's a concession to Stallone's age at the time he made this movie. But I, I, have, I do have to say one thing: Stallone's body in this Ugh. looks all right <laughs> in the in the uh, the not the replacements in the um, expendables. 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 He looks like he's tapping in venom in underneath <laughs> his, his skin. In this, he actually kind of looks healthy, and it's all right. I'm, I can believe well, that he's you know, that age the, and that fit. 
in the yeah, tunnel. but also in in Rambo Four, I thought he he was very merciful in keeping his shirt on um, <laughs> for, the, you know, for the first time in the franchise. Wow. Um, you know, Rocky Balboa it was kind of unavoidable, but you know, this time, yeah, I, I really appreciate. What that. he could have worn a T-shirt in the ring. It's chilly out here. But you're, what, you're, what you're saying about the you know, the mercenaries is an important point also because, yeah, it's a concession to his age, and, and part of that is also that you know, it's a little much to ask not just of, of Sloan and not just of the character, but also of the audience to keep the entire thing just on his shoulders. And, and, and for the same reason, uh, you have um, Shia LaBeouf in um, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, and you have Justin Long in uh, Live Free or Die Hard. You know these these franchise reboots, um, at least some of the big ones, are bringing in you know, bigger cast or a younger cast or a younger co-star to you know, kind of spreading the wealth around a little bit um, to make it a little more re- relevant to um, the younger audience and a little less ridiculous. Are we are we saying they're they're tenders? Are they uh, I guess helping out the old guys? Say it again. They're the crutch. Is that what we're saying? Um, I don't know that I would go as far as, as far as to call them a crutch. I think um, they're a device. Die Hard uh, was 19 years old when Die Hard 4 came out. Um, you know, the, the franchise had passed a lot of its target audience by, uh, at least theatrically. So, um, you know, in Indiana Jones, it's, uh, you know, it's a similar thing. Um, so I don't know that I would call it a crutch, but a device to... Um, a, a bridge, call it a bridge, between this older franchise, this older character, this older star, and the younger audience that um, is still going to be very important to the box office. Well, there's also the, the sort of sort of. I, I started referring to it as, as the, the the franchise escape clause, where mm-hmm. you know, if they <laughs> if they can't get Stallone back for a major part in another Rambo movie, then they they can begin the Rambo spinoff with these mercenaries. Right. Yeah, but I Terminator, want to see the second I mean, Indiana the Terminator Jones. franchise. That's that's exactly what the Terminator franchise did. That's a good point. Sure. But that really you didn't have you didn't have really Schwarzenegger wasn't carrying the last movie. Well, but you had a different right, actor exactly. play John Terminator. Connor. Different player, Connor Connor. If you had had the same actor throughout playing John Connor, then it's the same. It's the clause. You can't just well, have a new uh, actor. I guess you're keeping the same character, sure. No, but what they've done, but that's that's the important point. What they did with the Terminator series was the first three, um, you know, focus on on Arnold for the most part. Um, but with the end of three, the focus shifts to John Connor, and and the and Judgment Day. So that the I I thought even at the time that oh, what they're doing is setting up a Terminator four without Arnold, but in a world that is sort of so fantastical. You know, they're going to take it out of the modern day and put it into this fantastical post-apocalyptic world, and we're going to follow John Connor so that they don't need Arnold anymore. So you know, they sort of made up for the absence of of the guy, and that's what you what you're talking. I like how you, you, you phrase that, the escape clause. It's, I, I do think it's the same thing that uh, that they did there. One thing I want to touch on earlier in the movie, I thought there's a really good scene where Rambo is taking the. Um, Christian missionaries down on the boat and they get stopped by a boat of uh, pirates mm-hmm. who start screaming at him and Stallone is telling all the other missionaries to shut up and he ends up having to to kill to kill them. Yeah, dispatch them. And it's an interesting scene because the violence sort of comes out of nowhere in as much as you haven't had that much violence in the film before that point. True, but at the same time, I think I I remember hearing a lot about um, I remember hearing a lot about pirates on the Amazon and stuff. That one guy who got his yacht stolen, and uh, I think one of the members of his crew got killed. And the idea was that he was trying to protect the the woman Liz um, because she would have been she would have been raped repeatedly, then killed. He knows what's in store for her. Guys, you're fine, you're safe, unless one of the others is maybe. But but the woman is in trouble. Mm-hmm. You have to save the what's it called? Um, you have to save the the virtue of the female lead, or it's like the honor or something. I, it's a oh god. It's a that's trope. touching on. I mean, that's going back to that's a trope from you know, American mythology that goes back 
you know, it's there all through the action genre. It's there through the Western, which precedes the action genre. In my book, I talk a lot about how, about what the, the action movie inherited from the Western. It's there from the Western literature that preceded Western movies, and it's there in the frontier literature that precedes Western literature, you know, like the Western novels and, and, and you know, writing. Um, you know, it's basically save the last bullet for yourself. Don't let the savage Indian touch the women, you know, yeah. the searchers. It's, you know, you can't allow um, the women to be corrupted by the touch of the other. That's our greatest fear. You know, that's, um, you know, it's, it's, I mean, it's a terrible uh, thing to have a cultural hang-up about. Um, but it's been, you know, it's been part of, um, it's, as I say in the book, that has been part of American mythology since before there was an America. Um, you know, it's, it's, the captive, it's the captivity scenario. There's a, there's a brilliant book uh, called Gunfighter Nation about how the Western gunfighter is the archetype for so much of American um, mythological life and political yeah. life and popular culture. And it's very much about this idea that um, the other you know, takes our women and the righteous, violent hero goes and brings her back and saves her. And when this mythology really got cooking on the American frontier, it was kind of used as a justification for killing a lot of Indians. Um, and the one man who can do anything about it uh, is the gunfighter, who is, is a white guy, but is also has spent time with the Indians, who kind of knows the Indians. Um, he, as this scholar Richard Slotkin calls him, he's the man who knows Indians. Go back to the searchers, right? Who is the authority on... Um, on Indian culture, John Wayne. You know, he always knows how the Indians work. Um, and that is an absolutely fundamental part of the character of Rambo. He's a, he's a white American, but he can fight like a Vietnamese guerrilla. You know, he, he, he is American and he is the other. And he's the one who's going to save the girl, the blonde girl. And, and could you have a more sort of white-bred American puritanical name than Sarah Miller? Um, he's going to save Sarah Miller from the, you know, corrupting, horrible touch of, um, you know, of these other pirates. That's a good point. Um, although, I mean, Rambo does stay true to what his mission is and that he's just taking them around to where the village is and then leaves. He doesn't stay with them. So, of Mm -hmm. course, the missionaries get kidnapped. And then this is when Rambo joins up with the goes with the mercenaries after being convinced by the pastor to go and rescue them from the uh, the enemy camp. But while... Wait, I'm sorry, so you're, so you're saying that Rambo leaves the, the missionaries behind, right? Is that, yes. is that what you're saying? Yeah, sorry. Right. And, and what happens at the end of the searchers? What happens at the end of, of most westerns? The hero rides off into the sunset, usually without the girl. Because the hero, whether it's John Wayne or Rambo, because he has that part of him, that's the other, right? He knows the Indians. He, he, you know, he's not necessarily literally part Indian, but you know, he's enough. There's, there's enough savagery within him that he can't fit into civilization. You know, how does Rambo two end? You know, he, Rambo walking off. Um, uh, Even the first one, he's walking off, but he's walking to prison. Well, he, right. He, he's taken into custody. Right. So it's not exactly the same thing, but I think it's it's consistent with that idea that this is a person who is too savage to become one with society. You know, he and, and Dennehy don't shake hands, and, and, you know, Rambo doesn't move to Hope, Oregon, you know, and settle down with a family. You know, he, he doesn't fit. Um, and there's a lot of imagery in First Blood that really makes that point. This is a guy who doesn't fit in this community. Um so I'd, I'd probably phrase it as, this is a community that does not fit in Rambo's world. Mm. Ooh, uh, nice. Hey, let's talk explosions. Okay. That's, there you go. Uh, so I, when Rambo like, lands with the... Oh, go on. No, no, because I want to talk about a scene, because, again, it's one of the scenes, once he's with the, the mercenaries go off, Rambo's like, uh, you're not going to survive. They go, and they find a group of villagers being used as mine detectors. And having to work in like the mud and stuff, and 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 that that is actually a really big thing in Burma. Um, there are so many landmines that have been set, and nobody knows where they are. They nobody marked them. They're just they're set as traps, and mm-hmm. it's both the fault of the the Liberation Army, the guerrilla ta- uh, guerrilla groups in there, and also the government. 
because they're each trying to hurt each other, but they wind up just hurting the uh, the people. And in this, the people are being used like dogs as just re- regular tools to find uh, bombs. And, and the explosions in this blew my mind. Just That was like, I was so, I actually felt the tension in my chest, worrying, were these people going to, like, were they going to die? And the guy throws a grenade, and there's uh, just lots of water explosions in this, which really made me think about the politics and what's actually happening in that area. Made me feel bad. I imagine uh, Stallone would be glad to hear you say that. I think, um, you know, the the issue of, of Burma in general is, whatever you want to say about the franchise and, and the character, I, I do think, and, and whatever you want to say about how how well served is the issue of Burma by the movie, um, I, I think it's pretty clear that the issue is on his mind or was on his mind. So I, I think he'd be glad to hear you say that. Because right now, I don't fear the Russians after seeing, I don't feel like, I don't hate the Russians after seeing the past movies. Because those were movie Russians. Yeah. I know the, this is a movie as well, but it kind of makes me hate uh, the Burmese Peace and Coalition Party, who basically held a military coup since, uh, what was 1964, 1965? Uh, I, I honestly don't know. Um, I, I don't know the history that well. I, I tried to do some research, but... Um, but but I think you know this, this kind of brings the conversation back to the stock footage in the beginning. You know, um, I, I don't know how much you knew about Burma going into the into the movie, but nothing. Um, okay, so then maybe that stock footage uh, did have its have its desired effect, or at least contribute to a greater desired effect, which was to make you hate these guys. Yeah. No. I mean, I I, I did have to like. I was like, why why is he attacking these people? I understand that there was there were people who were getting hurt. But I didn't know. I didn't know about the country. I didn't know, I guess, about what was happening politically. I mean, yeah, it's fine to have some just some guys in bamboo huts shooting people and torturing people, and you should hate them for that. But you should also hate them because they're doing it all over the country. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's that's just that's just me. I, I didn't want to get heavy there for a second, but uh, but like the violence in this really had me caring about the people. I really did want to see these bad people, I guess, blown up, not comically either. I was glad when he was coming up behind people in total darkness and, and sticking his knife into their throats. Well, you know, one thing about action movies that I always find interesting is, um, and about action movie violence is, the issue or the role of non-combatants. Um, you know, so these it, the Rambo series. Um, Ram- Rambo First Blood Part Two. Um, from what I remember, there's very little violence, if any, directed against civilians. Um, you know, you have innocent American prisoners, but they're soldiers. Um, you know, the, the violence is is often contained just between the combatants. Uh, an example I, I like to use is Lethal Weapon. Um, in the original Lethal Weapon, which is set you know within a city where there are civilians all over the place presumably, there's very little violence, if any, that, that involves um, the extras, right? It's contained between the cops and the bad guys, and, and by extension, the cops' family. Um, yeah. you know, they get caught in the middle, but they're, they're connected to the cops. Um, con- you know, by contrast, you have Shane Black's um, The Long Kiss Goodnight, you know, which he wrote and Ronnie Harlan directed, where you, know, you have a gag similar to what you have in Total Recall, where there's a, there's a shootout in a train station, and it's just this innocent bystander gets caught in the crossfire. That's a really different kind of moment than almost anything you have in, in Lethal Weapon. Um, it's different when the innocent bystanders, the civilians, the extras get killed, um, especially if it's done savagely as it's done in Rambo. Um, when, you, when, it, when the violence is contained just between the combatants, I think it's easier to check out and just treat it like it's escapism, and just sort of enjoy the fantasy. Um, it's le- I think it's, it's much harder to do that when you have the innocent get caught up in it, which is exactly the point. I mean, that's why it's shocking, it's brutal, it's, it's uncomfortable, and I think that's exactly why Stallone deployed it. He didn't have to, it was a choice. It's also a bit similar to what happens in Rambo 3 when you have the Russian helicopters attack the uh, Afghan village. Uh, yeah. Although in that, it's not... So they are freedom fighters, but, you know, so that, that's... Hmm, I want 
they're freedom fighters in in Rambo, but they're in three. But yeah, there def- there's definitely more of a sense of them being um, innocent, and there's also the, the whole David and Goliath aspect to that uh, to that struggle. Yep, I mean in that that scene, you know, it's not as gory or gritty as uh, stuff in Rambo. It's like we've talked about it before, and and even uh, Thrasher will back me up on this. It's it's cartoonish. Oh, Rambo three. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, very much. And two as well. I mean, helicopter yep. jousting. <laughs> right. <laughs> yep. Um, this one, the the violence was more realistic. It was palpable. Uh, the thing when he jumps onto the when he jumps onto the uh, the truck, and it, since he's not on the ground with like two guns, like firing like crazy, he's on a truck uh, firing with um, uh, I guess uh, just not a machine gun. I don't know what it is. It's, it's a, a Gatling gun. No. Yeah, basically. Well, you know, I don't want to downplay the brutality of, of violence in 80s movies, but I do think that if you're talking about Rambo and Rambo 3, part of the reason why they're rated R is the scale of the violence. In today's um, movie making with, with CGI, the scale of the violence doesn't get you a hard R anymore. Um, so if you're going to go for that R, you have to make up for it in brutality um you know, because because the special effects i think um you know with with cgi um you know you have violence on an even greater scale than you used to but it's much tamer so you're going to go for the gore you're going to go for the, that real but also i mean as an expert on violence would you say that we as an audience are kind of jaded um, we want bigger better bangs and flashes i'm, I'm and sorry could you could you repeat the question as i guess okay like the audience today is more jaded in our want of, like, violence and blood and explosions. I mean, frankly, for me, I mean, Rambo 1 wasn't tame. I mean, uh, I should say, First Blood wasn't tame. I liked the way that people got injured, but you didn't see a lot of blood. The falls were kind of fake. Um, the action did seem more real than it did in Rambo 2, which to me felt more, felt more I guess... Over the top. It was over the top, but it just didn't make sense to me. It wasn't shocking. I wasn't shocked by the deaths. I wasn't shocked by the explosions. Because, yeah, I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's what Rambo does. But in this, like, I really was, like, I was taken back by the brutality. And it was definitely over the, it was, it was more realistic in this one, at least. Yeah, well, I, I think a couple of things. I think um, if you want to limit the, the discussion to action movies, um, Rambo is definitely an outlier in, you know, Rambo 4 is definitely an outlier in terms of, of how it depicts violence, um, you know, relative to where action movies generally are today. Um, our audiences, you know, I, I think we're, used, we're not as used to seeing blood um, um, as we were. Uh, I think that's possible. Um, are we more jaded? Is today's audience more jaded? Um, you know, I, the way I tend to think of it is we're, we're less, it's not that we're more jaded about violence. I think it's that we're more jaded about experience. We're, we're more jaded about just having an experience with a character. Um, we're a lot more ironic, you know, I mean, look at the, at the Scream movies, you know, um, which, uh, which are, I realize are, are pretty old at this point, you know, and, and they're, they're bring, that's a franchise they're, they're bringing out of mothballs. Um, I think that a lot of the way movies are made, um, I think Michael Bay embodies this pretty well, um, kind of deadens our ability to just have an experience. So I think the reason why First Blood would hold up um, is that it's, it's straightforward filmmaking, very, very good filmmaking. It's straightforward. You get to connect with the character. The movie isn't so flashy and jarring that you don't you can't really get into it. Um, you know, I remember seeing Transformers and thinking, I don't know, maybe I'm just too old, but I don't know what experience I'm supposed to be having right now. And well, like, okay, Michael Bay. Let's, we can discuss Michael Bay. And he's using <laughs> explosions in, in action. But. Well, you know, it's explosions, but it's also, it's something more fundamental. It's, it's the editing. It's the compositions. It's the sound design. It's, you know, it's how everything is, is assembled. Um, you know, Rambo, the, you know, Rambo 4, 
um, has an explosion that I love. Um, and it's when it's toward the end. It's when he he, I, he detonates something, and the explosion is fine. But then there's this little bit where there's like this whirlwind of leaves that he has to outrun. And I remember thinking, wow, that is a really cool piece of business. Mm-hmm. Not something I'm used to seeing. It's not totally um, over the top, and, and it's not like this assault on my eyes and on my ears. It felt kind of real, and it was cool. It was interesting, and it was contained. Um, I thought that was great. Uh, I, I really did. And it's, you know, I feel like it's something very few filmmakers would would do. Everybody would just go really big and over the top and a total assault on your senses. And it would be very impressive, but it wouldn't be very exciting. It wouldn't be very engaging. And this one little bit from, from the fourth Rambo, I thought, was engaging and was interesting. And I, I really admired it. I mean, in the way Sylvester Stallone directs this film, you can at least tell what's going on at a given point in the action <laughs> scenes. And uh, parts of Transformers, but uh, Transformers 2 in particular... In the beginning of that film, you have, like, all the robots are doing some mission in Shanghai. And you can tell what the hell is going on. They introduce 20 characters and fighting, like, five evil robots in four different locations in, like, a five-minute scene. Well, you know, I, I talk about Michael Bay uh, at great length in, <laughs> uh, in Action Speaks Louder. In fact, I've had people come up to me and say that, that their favorite part of the book is where I talk about Michael Bay. Um <laughs> And, you know, what you're describing from Transformers 2 is, is consistent with how he's been making movies his whole career. Um, you know, God forbid you actually you know, have a sincere experience of something that isn't ironic or totally overwrought. Um, you know, First Blood, you know, he's a person. And, uh, and I think it's, it's – and, and you have this experience. And I think it's unfortunate that as the series goes on, particularly through 2 and 3, it becomes so much more over the top. I mean, just compare – uh, you know, and, car- and as you said, cartoonish. You know, just compare um, uh, his his physique in First Blood to his physique in, in Rambo First Blood Part Two. You know, he's so much more sculpted, and, and he's, a, he's much more of a cartoon character just visually in in the second one, um, and, and certainly in the third one. And the, the publicity materials for the sequels really love to talk about his his training and his uh, workout regimens and all those things. Um, but that's how, you know, that's how franchises evolve generally. They go bigger. Um, and it's hard to get them to kind of come back down. And, and so I think in some ways Rambo is kind of admirable for the fourth one being more contained than, than the predecessors. Well, what's the, what's the final body count on this film? I don't know. It's a lot. Um, <laughs> cause it's, it's more, it has more bodies down probably, it's probably not just Rambo, but maybe it is like it's got to be the most. It's got to be the most he's ever killed in a movie. Well, I've even seen it stated that just don't know the number. <laughs> yeah, I can't. But find... at the same time, it has the more. It has more violence from both sides. Not only because you again, you have the villagers being killed. Uh, you have the soldiers being killed. You have the mercenaries killing some of the soldiers. Um, so it's not all Rambo. Like we were saying, it's not on his shoulders every death. Um, and and you know also, um, it could be just that. I think part of it's the uh, function of the running time of the movie, or maybe part of it is just that I'm older than I was. In- wait, 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 the running time? Yeah, the running time is ridiculous. It's like 90 minutes or something, but there's like 11 minutes of credits, um, <laughs> of end credits. So maybe, so what I was about to say was maybe it's partly a function of the running time being so short, um, or maybe it's partly a function of me just being older than I was you know, in the 80s. But this movie felt to me much more like a B movie than Rambo 2 and 3 did. You know, well, I mean, you know what? That movie... actually brings up a good point, though, because think about it. The story itself is very short. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very basic. Rambo, ta- and Rambo takes missionaries, leaves missionaries. Rambo then takes has to get the mercenaries to get the missionaries. Then he kills a whole bunch of people. Right. And he's always been very economical. Uh, to put it kindly, when it comes to story. I mean, especially going back to the 80s. Um, Rock, Rocky IV is like, I think Rocky IV is under 90 minutes. Um, Cobra is like ridiculously short. Um, you know, and, and Rambo 2 II and 3, I, I don't think, are especially long. Um, so maybe it's, you know, the passage of time is, is doing funny things to, you know, to my sense of how long these movies are. But um, 
But, yeah, and there's no disputing that Rambo 2 and 3 are B-movies at heart. But I think they were made, they felt like they were made on a much bigger scale. Um, again, maybe that's because I was younger when I saw them for the first time. But I don't really think that's it. You know, one thing that the action movie did was elevate the B-movie to this kind of A-movie status. So you know, Rambo 2 and 3 take place on a huge scale. In fact, Rambo 3 was, at the time, the most expensive movie ever made. Uh, or one of them, at least. It was like the budget was like sixty-three million dollars. Um, that was huge in nineteen eighty for a movie being released in nineteen eighty-eight. Um, That's weird. It didn't. It doesn't feel like that. It's that expensive. No. Well, it certainly doesn't now. Um, but you know what? What? But th- what else was being released in nineteen eighty-eight? And look, I'm sure a lot of that sixty-three million dollars went to Sylvester Stallone. But um, I, you know, I don't think it's an especially good-looking movie. But um, you know, but what else was being released, you know, at the time? You know, your other action movies that summer, um, The Deadpool, Dirty Harry Five, right? Um, Chuck Norris had, like, this very B-level thriller um, called Hero in the Terror. Um, Bronson had had Death Wish 4 the year before. Um, somewhere around there was Missing in Action 3. Um, the only other um, big action movie that summer um, was Die Hard which was not supposed to be a blockbuster. Um, they didn't know what that thing was going to be. Rambo 3 was designed to be the blockbuster, and it wasn't. It was, a, it was kind of a flop. Oh, Red Heat from 1988. Oh, you know, God. So, oh, Red Heat. Jeez. Right. Look at Look at Die Hard, though, because also, like, I'd love to talk about Die Hard at some point, because Die Hard is kind of, it's a, it's a huge action movie that takes place in a very contained Spot. It's in a building. They don't move from the block. They move forward. It's not a huge action movie, but it looks amazing. Yeah. Um, You know, it's not supposed to be on the same scale as a Rambo three, but it looks fantastic. And and believe me, I can talk to you a lot about that franchise. Um, You know, I know, but um, anyway. So my my overall point though was that the the action movie had taken what were really B movie plots and dressed them up as A-movies, you know, A-level movies. Now, they might not look like A-level movies today. You know, I, I saw Lethal Weapon projected uh, in a class I taught. Uh, I hadn't seen it on a, an actual 35-millimeter print of Lethal Weapon uh, on a big screen since it had come out. I mean, I've seen the movie many times, but on a big screen, not since it was released. And I was amazed at how small, just conceptually, the third act was. It's basically a foot chase, and that's it. It worked great. It's a great chase. It's really well made. Um... But that's looking at it today. You know, that's after, you know, the Mummy movies and the Matrix and, and everything else right. has come along. So I think when, with looking at Rambo 4, it felt much more like a B-movie because it was maybe truer to the original, but it wasn't true to its contempt or wasn't consistent with its contemporaries. So that the B-movie quality, I thought, was much more apparent here than, than in the series in the past. We started off talking about nostalgia, and I think we can wrap it up talking about nostalgia too i really enjoy the music uh composed mm-hmm. by brian tyler and he reuses the, the original rambo uh, music theme done by jerry goldsmith yeah and the end of the movie when i saw it in the theater for some reason hit me emotionally which is weird because there's no dialogue but you see uh the character of rambo he's back in the united states wearing pretty much the same clothes he wore yeah. in first blood and you have that same music coming full circle, on. And full circle. Yeah, oh, certainly full circle. I was half expecting a, uh, a cop car to drive by, stop, <laughs> and Brian Dennehy's head would pop out and say, hey, you, need to, you can't go in this town. Well, and also, you know, he doing he's, walking home. he's walking home down that long dirt road, and as you, you know, it's that really long shot, and as you might remember, which, which of course is an echo to the opening of the first movie, you're right, but it's also a play, I think, on the, uh, the Dan Hill song, that is heard at the end of First Blood, which is the music written by Jerry Goldsmith, the song being It's a Long Road. Right. But, there, but, I, but I'm really glad you brought up the Goldsmith's score because um, Goldsmith's scores in, in all the first three are really good, especially the first one. And I got very emotional during the end credits for a very specific reason. When First Blood was released in 1982, um, the end credits are that, that Dan Hill song, right? It's a Long Road. Yep. Yeah. Originally, Jerry Goldsmith had recorded an instrumental cue, an orchestral cue for the end title that wasn't used. 
Ooh. It was released on a soundtrack album put out by a specialty label called Entrada. Um, I don't remember what year that album came out, but um, but yeah, anyway, has done a lot of specialty soundtrack yeah. releases. So what Tyler did specifically, not only did he use the themes that um, that Goldsmith had composed, but Tyler used that too. He reor- I think it was slightly reorchestrated and re-recorded, but he was basically using that cue and f- to start the end credits. And so, you know, two years, or, or I'm sorry, four years or so after um, Goldsmith had died and 26 years after First Blood came out, that music was finally being heard coming out of a movie theater sound system, you know, 26 years after it was originally supposed to. So oh. I thought that was just great. And I, I really loved that they had that much fidelity and, and honor for, for Goldsmith's work. Yeah, and I was listening to one of the, uh, the audio commentaries on the DVD, and Sylvester Stallone says originally they had filmed additional scenes for the ending where Rambo goes into the house at the end of the road where his father lives, and he talks to his father, and his father talks to Rambo about him being part Native American. And, um, I mean, they haven't had that scene on a DVD or anything, and I think that would have been kind of silly to have at the end of this film the heartfelt father and son discussion, but just him walking around the on the yeah. lawn road is a great wide shot, great image, very old fashioned sort of ending shot too. Yeah, and and you know it's interesting what you say about the the father because there is a line I think it's in two about him being half Native American, half German, um, which um, so it's interesting that there that there was at least for a time they were going to bring that back in some form in this one. But it, it speaks to what I was talking about earlier, right? The, the hero who's, you know, who's part, I mean, I'm using this word somewhat ironically, who's part savage, you know. Um, he's, you know he's a continuation of that tradition embodied by John Wayne, embodied by all the Western gunfighters, um, you know, who, who sort of have that, who've integrated that part of the other. So you know, hear them, they're talking about it in Rambo in, you know, 2008. So, uh, in conclusion, does, do we have any final thoughts about this uh, Rambo, this uh, last film in the Rambo series? Um, yeah, I, I, there's one thing we haven't talked about, which is that I thought it was so interesting that in the same uh, couple of years, um, he had Rocky Balboa and Rambo. And I thought Rocky Balboa worked great, surprisingly great. Rambo, I thought, had one major flaw that we haven't talked about. The fact that it doesn't really feel, doesn't really feel like a lot of time has passed since the last movie. Hmm. The story of Rocky Balboa can only be told after a lot of time has passed since the first five movies. And it kind of rewards you as an audience member for waiting that long. With Rambo, I mean, if you take the specifics of the, of the geopolitics out of it, there's nothing about this movie where they couldn't have told this story in, or, or made this movie in 1992. You know, they, they I, yeah, totally agree. Yeah. 20 years. And they I just do Rambo movie. Right, and I thought that was a real missed opportunity. Um, so for that reason, I, I didn't think it worked as well as, as Rocky Balboa, but it's, you know, I'd love I love it when these characters come back. I love it when, when like we were talking about at the beginning, I love the audacity of bringing them back. I would say that it's prob- now that they brought him back, it's probably better to let him rest. He <laughs> um, looks like he could use it, and uh, you know, I wow. think now it's time to leave well enough alone. Um, but but you know, it was it was nice to see him, just the same way it's nice to see John McClane and it's nice to see Superman and, and all these guys come back. It, it definitely gives you this feeling of everything is okay again. Um, and I, I think you know we need that now more, you know, as much as not more than we ever did. So, uh, so I always appreciate those efforts. The marketing they did for this movie, I thought, was pretty interesting. On on the one hand, you had a trailer that I, I don't know the name of the song, but the, there's a part in it that goes "Let the bodies hit the floor" and has a lot of <laughs> screaming as it shows Rambo shooting oh, a bunch of people. Oh, it's Puddles of Mud, I think, is the band. Oh, is it? Okay. But um, and then on the other hand, you had a, a preview poster for this film that all it was it looked like graffiti of just like yeah. Rambo of Stallone's face, and I thought that was a pretty neat sort of striking image that you don't see in a poster every day. It's normally just floating heads. Yeah, and, and some that background. Image, you know, 
that image was not supposed to be um, on the poster. That image was not supposed to be the centerpiece of the ad campaign. Um, but uh, you know, it, it is a very striking graphic. And what's interesting is the poster for Rocky Balboa has Rocky with his back to the camera in, um, in that, I believe it's in that famous, iconic, arms-raised position, um, you know, looking out over Philadelphia. Yeah. And you know those two, um, what those two posters have in common? You don't have to look at Stallone's face. I'm not trying to be disrespectful. I think it's the truth. I think, I'm sure yeah. the marketing guys would deny it, but wow. the, you know, on a poster, you have to linger on that image for as long as you're in front of it. Um, whereas with the trailer, you know, it's all happening so fast. And I think that, um, so I think the posters de-emphasize the age of the character, whereas um, the trailers, the, the trailer for Rambo is really all about the violence. And I think that was a deliberate message to signal to the audience, you know, this is a hard R. We're not going to pussy around with this. Uh, Jason, do you have any last thoughts on uh, Rambo? Uh, man, uh, I guess... I would have liked a bit more fire. <laughs> yeah, more explosions. No, I mean, there's definitely firepower. There's lots of lots of bullets and such flying, but I just think more fire. More fire. Okay, <laughs> uh, that's a good a note to you know end talking about the Rambo films as any more fire. Uh, Eric, thanks uh, very much for being on the sequel cast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Do you have any? Uh, you know, other books or anything you're working on? Uh, there's a couple of, there are a couple of ideas I'm sort of toying with right now. Um, I'm not sure which one's going to come out in the lead yet. Um, so. You should do one, you should do one on future warfare, covering the, uh, the battleship, uh, or no, the starship troopers. <laughs> <laughs> I like that movie. It took me a while to get into it, but, but I've come to like it a lot. Have you seen starship troopers three? I have not. I've it's, not it's, seen any of It's direct to video. Um, the third one actually is okay if you get into the goofy tone of the first one, but uh, I'd I mildly recommend Starship Troopers 3. I guess you got to be in a certain mood for that one. <laughs> but um, is there anywhere where people can uh, read your current um, you know, thoughts on film? You know, I, I appreciate your asking. I haven't written um, much in a while, uh, partly as I'm, I'm spending time trying to raise... Uh, you know, two new, hopefully, action, future action movie fans. Um, so I haven't written in a while, but um, I will certainly uh, get in touch if I do. Um, like I said, I'm developing a couple of other ideas and, and sort of waiting to see which one catches fire first. Okay. More fire. More fire. <laughs> more, more fire for you. But you can, but as you mentioned, you can um, see my work on uh, the Predator DVD and also on the Die Hard uh, DVD. Um, uh, as far as I know, all the stuff I did for the DVD is... is is out on the Blu-rays. You know, I did um, text commentaries and some uh, interviews to the audio commentaries, and, and those are just a huge, huge blast. So, uh, yeah, they're definitely on the Die Hard one. On the Predator one, you have to make sure there's a version that's called Predator Ultimate Hunter Edition, uh-huh. and that's the one that has a text commentary. I think there was an early release of Predator when Blu-ray first came out that doesn't right. have any extras. You're Does right. the Ultimate yeah. Hunter come in a Predator skull? No, that would have been cool though. <laughs> it just has the Predator mask on the uh, cover of that one. Well, uh, Eric, thank you for your time. And Thank um, you. I appreciate it. All right. Have a good night. You too. Bye, guys. Bye. The sequel cast airs Wednesdays, 3 to 4 p.m. Pacific time on Cascadia.fm online, internet streaming radio. You can also download episodes of the sequel cast from www.sequelcast.com.